Hi, I'm Ann Delisi. Welcome to episode 14 of Essential Conversations. This is part two of my conversation with Prince's longtime audio engineer, Susan Rogers, in which we talk about his guitar playing and how he created his own competition. One of the things we wanted to talk about was um, Prince's guitar playing. And I was telling Susan that when I was researching Prince after he passed, there's this great story about Prince sitting in a bar with Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. And they were like, like guitar nerds talking for three hours about guitars. That's all they talked about. And one of the things that Billy Gibbons was trying to get Prince to tell him was how they got the guitar sound at the beginning of When Doves Cry. And Prince wasn't giving it up. But you know, but you know how, kind of. Uh. No, I don't. I can't say that I remember. Uh, In fact, I might not have even been there. I just joined Prince. He went out to, he was in Los Angeles. I was working with the time at home in Minneapolis. And when I came out to Los Angeles, when Dove's Gry had been completed. Now, we put up the tape again, and we continued to work on it. But that guitar part was done, and Peggy McCreary gets the credit for that. One thing, though, that we did a lot with Prince is very speed the tape machine. So... You could take a part that was super fast, and Prince didn't need to do this, but we'd very speed the tape machine for the tone, slow the machine down. He could transpose instantly. Uh, He didn't need a capo or anything like that. He would just play it in a different key, and then you bring it back up to speed, and you get sometimes you get this lightning fast delivery. Right. But the tone changes. The tone gets thinner. In the case of When Doves Cry, uh, I think he played it. I think what you're hearing is, is what he played. Who remembers when Prince got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame back in 2004? So I was telling Susan, we were talking about his guitar playing, and we're going to play the last couple minutes of this guitar um, solo. During the rehearsal, my understanding is, is that there was another guitarist on stage, and during rehearsal, that guitarist took all the solos, and Prince just sort of stood there. But when it came time to actually play this, song, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Um, and so there was Jeff Lynne and Tom Petty and um, Donnie Harrison, George Harrison's son. Um, and Steve Winwood was up there too. Mm. And they were all, they look, they look gobsmacked because Prince didn't lay it out during the rehearsal. And this is what that night sounded like. that if you recall so he was wearing a brown suit with a fedora and a red shirt I'll never forget it and he takes off his guitar and he throws it into the air and it disappeared in the air I mean that's what it looked like and he walked right off the stage and it was awesome it was so great so Susan let's talk about his guitar playing for a second here Oh, I remember um, this was early in my time with him and he was There was a big story uh, about him in a big magazine. I think it was Time Magazine, and it was a big deal. So it was such a big deal that we were again at Sunset Sound, and I I was in the control room with him, and I think Wendy and Lisa were there. And he had the magazine open, and he was reading aloud from the magazine. He was reading the article to us. He was, you know, he was pretty excited. It was Time Magazine, a a feature on him. And then um, 
it said the diminutive singer, and he says, diminutive, why do they always call me diminutive? And uh, Wendy said, well, how tall are you? He said, I'm 5'3", with <laughs> a great deal of dignity. But then uh, they read something where they talked about what a brilliant piano player he was, and they put the magazine down, and he got this look on his face, and he kind of looked off in the distance, and he looked kind of sad, and he just said, nobody ever talks about my guitar playing. And then he went back to the magazine. <laughs> yeah, he was 100% right. So when you've got a writer on guitar who is that facile on the instrument, you can hear that he writes because you can hear he uses the guitar to its full extent. He uses it as a melodic instrument and he uses it as a rhythm instrument as he chooses and goes back and forth. He said that he was most heavily influenced by Santana. He liked that thick, clean tone of Santana. He liked to bend strings the way Santana, Santana did. And in the time when I was working with him, he used those 11 gauge strings, those really thick strings so he could get that tone. Now, if you hear Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones talk about the difference between piano playing and guitar playing, they're two very different instruments for writing as well as for playing. Mm -hmm. Makes Prince even more extraordinary that he was that amazing on piano and could play guitar like this, that he could play guitar like a songwriter and not like a piano player, like a guitar player. It's almost just unbelievable the extent of his virtuosity in so many different fields. We won't see another like him anytime soon. I'm gonna start going a little quicker through these questions, but what was your, fav your favorite Prince uh, vocal performance? I think it might be my favorite guitar performance too, uh, Joy and Repetition. Oh. <gasps> The song, the story, the solo at the end, the vocal, that scream at the end. Oh, could it be much better? I don't know. So you started the vault. I did. You started the vault. <laughs> we heard so much about it after he passed away. Everybody got concerned about it. What was going to happen to it? Whose hands would it be and who would curate it? What was your thinking when you started it? Was it that there is so much material here, I have to have find a place to just put all of his work? That was it, exactly. It was uh, that when I first came to work for him, he might say, you know, it might be 2 o'clock in the morning, he'd say, find the multi-track of Bambi. I'm going to put that up. Or just anything, some silly thing that he had recorded that I didn't know. And I had to know where all these tapes were because that was my job. So uh, I had to collect them all. It turns out that they were scattered at a few different studios, and some of them were at Warner Brothers in Burbank. So I systematically started gathering up everything he'd ever recorded to have it all in one place, and then cataloging it and labeling it and things like that. As we built Paisley Park Studios, it became, it was designed as a vault, which was about um, not as, well, maybe, maybe half the size of this room, but probably closer to 40% the size of this room. That was the size of it. It was just shelves like we saw at Motown today with tapes in it. I understand by the early 90s you couldn't get the door shut. It was so full. After he passed away, what were your feelings about how that vault and the material in it was going to be treated and whether any of it should be released? Yeah. Um, and who was going to do it? Well, this was a huge problem to consider. So here's an artist who has pound for pound given us several lifetimes worth of material. So the enormity of the task is huge. It's a managerial problem. Who's going to do this? It's a technical problem. There's a financial problem. Who's going to pay for it and where's the money going to go? It's an organizational problem. It's a legal problem. 
And then there's the philosophical problem. Stuff in the vault. He didn't release it. Maybe he doesn't want it released. Uh, who should we serve here? So it was very, very difficult for everyone who contemplated it and was, was part of, of the discussions. Ultimately, what has happened is the, the story is turning out really, really well because the person who is the chief archivist is the finest record executive I've ever worked with in my entire career. The man could not be more conscientious or caring or devoted or smart about these problems. So it's in good hands. Uh, but that said, there are still all these challenges. Uh, my personal feeling is that I want to see everything released, everything he ever did released, because I want Prince's archive available to future scholars and historians to keep his memory alive. He, yeah, I think so. Um, now, now, people say, well, it's in the vault. He, he didn't want it released. I wouldn't jump to that conclusion. If he didn't want it released, he could erase it as he famously did with the original version of the song Wally. He erased it because he didn't want it heard. Everything else that got to live <laughs> lived in the vault, and I would assume it's someday, yeah, why not release it? If he didn't like it, he would have gotten rid of it. So now I want to talk about a lot of what we found out about Prince after he passed away. I was telling Susan that when I did the first tribute to Prince, I had two days to get it ready and it was a three-hour tribute. What was fascinating to me is the year, and I did another tribute to Mark a year um, since his passing. That show was entirely different because now everybody talked about Prince. All the stories that we didn't know came out. Everybody talked about him in a way that they wouldn't have talked about him when he was alive, and I mean in a kind way. But one of the things that happened was the stories about his kindness and his generosity were overwhelming. And they were everywhere. So I'm going to tell you uh, quickly a couple things that I knew about. And then Susan has some stories that are incredible. The one story um, I know is that the famous drummer for uh, James Brown, Clyde Stubblefield, had, um, I think, close to $80,000 in medical bills. And Prince just paid it. Um, and, and Clyde Stubblefield had recorded at Paisley Park, but he had never met Prince. He was just an influence on Prince. Um, there was this um, organization, uh, they were doing all kinds of great things with kids and I think green spaces and everything and, they, and so Prince tried to send them a check but he didn't want them to know it was him so they sent it back to him and he <laughs> sent it back again. And so then they sent it back and, and, and a representative for Prince said, um, you know, you keep sending this check back, you know, we, this is a donation and they're like, well, we can't, we don't know who this is from so we're not going to accept it and they finally just said, he likes purple. <laughs> so they cashed the check. <laughs> um, but I'm going to turn this over to Susan because um, the, the, the list is endless and we could never talk about how generous and kind he was, but you do have, have some stories that I want people to hear. Well, when we were on the Purple Rain tour, I remember playing Gallaudet, which is a, a kind of a school and a facility for kids who had um, illnesses or handicaps of one kind or another that wouldn't allow them to come to to see the show. 
Prince would play at Perkins. He played at the Perkins School for the Blind. He would play uh, for special audiences, and we kept a separate truck available with loaded up with a second set of musical instruments that we would take into recording studios or that we'd take earlier in the day to these places so that we could set up and give the kids a proper show with the stage clothes and props and everything and a nice sound system and just do a show for the kids. Prince would do this on the condition that there were no press there. He didn't want the credit for it. He just wanted to do it. Uh, after I left Prince, some years after, I learned from two very prominent artists, one Bonnie Raitt, the other Michelle Ndege Ocello, that Prince had been their anonymous angel, that when their careers, prior to them getting big, getting really huge, when their careers were just hanging on to those contracts by a thread and they were in danger of losing their record deal, Prince anonymously paid their tour support and paid the money to keep their careers alive long enough that they could find the right producer, write the right songs, and stay afloat so that they had a chance to get some traction on their careers. Both of these women told me this, and Michelle said, she said, for years my label wouldn't tell me until finally I insisted. And then I, when I insisted, she says, I learned it was Prince. He didn't want the credit, he wanted the work done. And you know, uh, for in Bonnie Raitt's case, it was right after that that she met Don Was and did Nick of Time and changed their li both of their lives, which is just incredible. Um, so you watched all of this happen all the time of his support of people. Oh, can you tell the story about the hotel rooms the, um, on the Purple Rain tour? Oh, here's another thing. So Purple Rain was my first tour. I didn't know what to expect, but it was a lot of people. At one point, I believe there were 130 people on that tour, a lot. You know, there's props and there's wardrobe and there's sound and there's lights and riggers and a lot of folks, management and makeup and everything. So they have to have a big production meeting where the tour manager gets up and hands you a big booklet. You know, this is before the internet, so there's a big thick binder with the tour itineraries and here's where you get your laundry done and here's where you can get a meal at two o'clock in the morning and blah, blah, blah. And then the tour manager is telling us all the things that are gonna happen on the tour and then he says, guys, I've got a special treat for you. And these folks who were on this tour were old, they were like sea dogs, you know, they'd been on, on the road quite a lot. And he said, as a special treat, Everyone on this tour gets his own room. And, the, and the, the crew just exploded because that just wasn't done. On rock and roll tours, crew members had to double up. That, you know, you save the money because they're very, very expensive. But Prince just wanted everyone to feel good and have a good time, and he wanted everyone to have their own room. And the guys, the experienced guys were telling me afterward, this is amazing. Like, this never happens. They had a lot of respect for him. They had a lot of love for him. Two misconceptions about Prince, that he was a perfectionist and he was an extrovert. Not true. He was definitely not an extrovert. Someone said that to me in an interview the other day. She prefaced a question by saying, now Prince was famously extroverted. And I said, no, <laughs> no, not, not extroverted. So an extrovert is a person who gets energized by being with other people. And a Prince was the opposite. An, an introvert gets energized by isolation. Um, Prince's mother came over the house at one point. She was moving, and she had a cardboard box that had his stuff in it, and she set it down, and Prince saw me looking at the box, and he said, you can look at it if you want to. Said, sure, I went, went through the box, and inside were his stuff from his childhood, including his report cards. And yeah, and his report cards showed he was a very good student, he was very smart, and the teacher said things like, he's smart, he's kind, he's respectful of authority, 
He's a joy to have in class, but he's extremely quiet. He was, he was an introvert. Um, he and Lisa in a car together, that would be a really quiet car. <laughs> and neither one of them speak much. Um, and then the thing about perfectionism, uh, people thought he was a perfectionist. No, no, he was just really, really, really good. But a perfectionist is someone who won't stop until every I is dotted and every T is crossed. We wouldn't have turned out as many records if we'd been aiming for perfection. We were just moving constantly, so not perfectionism. One of the things Susan and I talked about was after life after Prince, and she had to basically unlearn or mm -hmm. move on and unlearn being with Prince. And one of the things that she said was, Prince would lay down a vocal for a four-minute song in four minutes, and then it was done. Well, that's not how everybody else records a song. Yeah, we, we need to hear the tape rewind. It was because he had changed his mind about a part or a lyric or something. He, he, would, just, he would just get it. Um, all of us talked about this, not just from my era, but Dylan Dresdow and Chris James and guys who worked with him after the year 2000 talked about how Prince would just spoil you for working with any other artist. And Dylan Dresdow said this. He said, you'd be sitting there watching some triple scale bass player and you're, you'd be thinking, come on, man. <laughs> come on. <laughs> What's going on? Come on. <laughs> we did have to learn, like, the rest of the world isn't that good. They're, they're not that, they're just not as proficient on their instruments and you have to be patient. And I've worked with some, I mean, really, really great session players and, and great musicians who are as good as it gets. But Prince was ex really exceptional. Um, before I start to get to your questions, I wanted to just talk about one final thing with Susan and that was how Prince created his own competition. Mm. And we all know all these groups, but um, I'm gonna let Susan talk to you about the thinking behind that and how this, you know, all these groups came to be and they were all Prince. So think about how smart he was. So I already talked about the pressure he must have been under and the emotional maturity that it took to handle his career, and handle his responsibilities, and handle his reputation throughout the course of his life. But he was also so smart that he recognized one dot in the firmament is just a dot, but a number of dots. Now you have a scene. And he recognized that just one artist coming out of Minneapolis wasn't as interesting as if there were other similar artists also coming out of Minneapolis. So as soon as he could, as soon as he had a little bit of success, he created his own competition. He created other bands who were just like him. He created the time as an alter ego, and he created Vanity Six as an alter ego, and then he did a record with Jill Jones, and a record with Sheila E., and a record with The Family. He created other artists because he was so prolific, he had more than one musical identity, but also because it, it would make him stronger if there were others like him from this region, and it, and it worked. It, when you think about, in the 80s, think about Bruce Springsteen, Madonna, Michael Jackson and Prince, how many of them were not only making their own records, but were making two or three records a year for other people? But, and when I say making, I mean writing all the songs, playing all the instruments, doing the guide vocal, and then having the artist come in and, and just match the vocal and then play his or her instrument, guitar or timbales or whatever it might be. No, <laughs> no one does this. 
Were there times when he gave away a song and he went, oh, that's a mistake? Yeah. Yeah, we were just talking about this, that he wasn't the best judge of his own material. I really believe this because two of his best-selling songs of all time he initially gave away. And one is Nothing Compares to You and the other is Kiss. He gave them both away. Uh, Kiss he took right back, but Nothing Compares to You, he he didn't hear it. Coming up next, Susan Rogers talks about when she realized it was time to stop working for Prince, and she talks about Prince's Hollywood encounter with Elizabeth Taylor. WDET celebrates 75 years of public radio with gratitude to our dedicated listeners. Listeners like you cherish community voices, local music, and independent journalism. This spring fundraiser, we're counting on your support, just as you count on us. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. I'm Andalisi with the conclusion of part two of my conversation with audio engineer and music professor Susan Rogers. Out of this pile, the most popular question in this stack of questions was, why did you leave Prince? So we want to know why you left, but I want to know how you left. How do you leave him? Yeah, it just had run its course. So um, a typical day, a typical day for me was 24 hours long, and that that was fairly typical. And quite often I did 48 hours. And um, there, my longest one was 96 hours, from waking up Friday morning and then going to bed Monday night. That was my longest. <laughs> I was seeing double at the end of it. So I put in 15 years worth of work in this compact time, and I had no life, uh, no family, no, no personal life, no, certainly no friends. Uh, one time, I was, I was telling a story in the control room, and I mentioned my friend said this or my friend said that, and Prince said, Susan, you don't have any friends. You work for me. <laughs> it was so true. <laughs> uh, anyway, Paisley Park Studios had opened its doors in 87. He was at home working at Paisley, and I was out at uh, Ocean Way Studios in Los Angeles doing post-production on the concert film Sign of the Times. And uh, I met a guy, uh, Billy Yodelman was the technician uh, who was working with me, and uh, Billy and I had a date. And I went out on a date. It was, I'm, you know, I'm a young woman, and it's the first time I'd been out on a date in years. And uh, it turned out Prince had flown in unexpectedly into L.A. that night, went looking for me, and couldn't find me. And it was the first time in over four years that he didn't know where I was. And he was livid. And uh, so the next morning, we were on the soundstage, uh, and he stormed in and just pointed at me. He said, you, and he pointed at a vocal booth. And we went over to the vocal booth, a small little booth, and shut the door. And he was just right in front of me. And he said, where were you last night? And I said, out. And we just knew, no, it's over. It's over. Uh, because as I started, you know, with the handshake and we're human beings, we ended the same way. Um, I can't keep this up. It's been great. And he couldn't keep it up either. The revolution had just left. Um, it was not an especially happy time in his life. Susanna Melvoin, uh, who was his fiancée, she, she was gone now. And he just, I think, wanted to wipe the slate clean and start over. So we, we parted ways then. 
After you left and you heard the music that he did after you left, was there ever this time when you thought, oh, that should be me. Oh, I wish I was back mm. there. The only pang I got was when I went to see him live and walking through the parking lot and realizing I should be in the stadium right now. This doesn't feel right. But I saw him several times after that. I would go back to Paisley and, and do work there. And other than one occasion when he was really upset at uh, Wendy and Lisa's album, <laughs> he yelled at me for it. Uh, it's a was, really good album, by the way. Yeah, yeah. he, he, he was he, pretty upset. And, and I, I fought back, like, it's not my fault, yell at them. But uh, all the other uh, interactions between us were really warm and very loving, and um, yeah, and that, that's, uh, I'm so glad that I uh, loved him then and love him now. So I guess to that point, there's a question in here uh, as to whether or not he made pancakes for you. I don't really, he, 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 no, he didn't make pancakes for me for sure, because I, I, I could cook, and I, at that time, I don't think he could. Um, but I would, I, I made things for him. He had a sweet tooth, and I made him, um, oh, cakes and I made him a pie once and made him uh, hot chocolate or he wanted pudding once and I, he wanted, was going to make it from the mix and I said no, 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 you, you make it from scratch, that's how it's done. Um, but yeah, I like to cook and he would never take advantage of me. He would never ask his engineer to do things that weren't the job of an engineer. He, as I said, he treated me with such respect. But every once in a while, it would be a Sunday, and we'd be at the house, and it'd be just the two of us, and things would be poking along kind of slow, and he'd go, you know what would be really good right now? So chocolate chip cookies. And that was kind of the cue, which meant, you know, if you wouldn't mind, it would be the grocery stores just up the street. And, you know, it was fun. Um, I asked Susan yesterday, I said, did he always wear those stiletto heels all the time? Like when he was home, like, does he wear them, does he wear them everywhere? And he did. Yeah, he did. He wore them everywhere, except when he played basketball, and he was a great basketball player. He was a great athlete. He was on the basketball team in, in school, and sometimes the crew would get together, and they'd uh, play baseball, or they'd play basketball. And it's, You've heard stories of how there's the tyrant boss, and so you have to let him win. I can honestly say, and Wally's here, Wally would probably agree with me. <laughs> there's Wally Safford, everybody. Wally. Uh, uh, Wally would probably agree. <laughs> You didn't have to let him win. Like, you could try your hardest, and he would usually win. He was a great athlete. And that includes playing pool and ping pong and things. Yeah. Okay, here's a question from the audience. Um, was there any song that almost didn't make it to the Purple Rain album? Yeah, Moonbeam Levels. Which is a song you love. Yeah, um, Moonbeam Levels was sequenced into the album, pulled off. It was put into Around the World in a Day, pulled off. I believe we put it in Parade, took it off. He um, had plans at the time I was with him in the 80s to do a movie called The Dawn, and that's why on Purple Rain on the liner notes it says, may you live to see the dawn, the next movie. <laughs> anyway, uh, it was going to be built around that song, and he never, the time passed, and it was no longer right for it. After he passed away and Michael Howell, his archivist, asked, which song would you like to see released first from the vault? That was the first thing I said is Moonbeam Levels. Do you guys want to hear a little bit of it? Yeah. 
how did you feel when you heard it finally come out? Oh, I was really happy that they chose that one. I think it represents um, some of the best of Prince. It represents his genius for melody, his genius for rhythm. It represents the honesty in his lyric writing. I think he was a supremely honest lyric writer. Uh, I think it's a, it represents him well. Um, to that point, so coming up soon, there's two things coming up. Next month is the 35th anniversary of Purple Rain. And... Um, how does that make you feel? <laughs> <laughs> and this album that's going to come out of Prince's versions of all of those um, songs he gave away for Vanity Six and the Time and everything. So you had to have recorded all of those. I recorded a lot of them, yeah, because there was so a lot of it was done before I joined him. No doubt, quite a bit done after I left. But I was with him during that very fertile period. So. Yeah, I, I get credits on a lot of those. It's going to be interesting for us to listen to those, which is Prince. Are, are they, are they going to be that much different, do you think? The only thing that changed was the artist would come in and do his or her lead Vocal. vocals, like Morris or mm -hmm. Sheila, and then play. Jesse would do a guitar solo, let's right. say, on, uh, on the time stuff, and, or, and Sheila would do, do percussion. So, yeah, you'll, you'll hear Prince singing, uh, I need a M-A-N, real man. <laughs> If they release that one, I need a man. The stuff he did for Vanity Six. <laughs> some of his stuff, I have to say, there were some songs that were better than others. And occasionally, we'd be working on something that was not too good. <laughs> Would you tell him? Uh, n well, no, but... <laughs> He would ask, and the, the worst one for me was, I couldn't hold it in. I started to laugh. It was uh, Adonis and Bathsheba. Oh, it was awful. And the chorus was, Adonis and Bathsheba in a garden of love. And I'm like, oh, keep it together. Don't laugh, don't laugh. And I didn't laugh until he overdubbed the harp. Adonis and Bathsheba in a garden of love. And I just cracked up. And he said, what's the matter? I said, I'm sorry, that is really funny. <laughs> God, I couldn't help it. And, he, and he, then he, he did this, this symbol, that the W, it means weak. So he'd do that with his band, and uh, when he would hold up the, the W, that meant weak. And in the studio, it meant take a Sharpie and write a big W on the tape box and put a circle around it for weak. <laughs> If time permits, I would like to tell you the Elizabeth Taylor story. Okay. I would love to hear it. It's just one of my favorite things. And Prince is actually not the central character in this story, but Prince is the one who told it to me. It says something about Prince's character and what he liked. So we're on the Purple Rain tour, and Prince is the biggest thing in L.A., and Prince would not, he didn't want to hang out backstage after the show. He always would come right off, after the final song of the set was Purple Rain, he'd come right off the stage. While the band is still playing the final chords, he'd get in a car, go to the hotel, shower and change, and then we'd either go to an after party where he'd play, or uh, we'd go to a recording studio. But his management told him, not this time. This is Hollywood, you're nominated for an Oscar. You need to go backstage and meet these celebrities, including Elizabeth Taylor. 
Now, because Prince was an extrovert, because he hated that kind of stuff, it was the last thing in the world he wanted to do. He was extremely uncomfortable in those kinds of situations by his own admission, which is why he didn't go to We Are the World. He wasn't comfortable with that. I heard him say it on the phone to Quincy Jones, but that's a different story. Anyway, Prince recognized there's truth in this. I have to do this, but he didn't want to do it. So the other character in this story is the same Boston boyfriend, John Sacchetti, who got me my job. Now, John Sacchetti was an electronics genius who taught me everything I knew. And uh, John lived in LA, and he and I were going to see each other. We were going to go out afterwards. So John, who Prince knew, he had, they'd met several times. John is backstage waiting for me to be finished. I was recording the show in a mobile truck, so John's back there waiting. So imagine the scene. It's backstage at the Forum in Los Angeles. All the stars in the Hollywood firmament are there, as well as a lot of hangers-on. In this room is Elizabeth Taylor, big, big actress, and Prince. Everyone in that room, no doubt, had the exact same thought. That thought being, I'm in the greatest place in the world. Look at me in this room with Elizabeth Taylor and Prince. Aren't I great? Everyone in that room had that thought, no doubt, except one person, John Sacchetti. John Sacchetti, <laughs> what John sees is a brother in trouble. And John knew the human nature and knew Prince well enough to know, guy's in trouble. He's my brother. I gotta look out for him. So John threw himself on the sword. Now, John Sacchetti, being from Quincy, Massachusetts, had a voracious appetite for drugs. And it really, really enjoyed them. So John, with his thickest Boston accent, goes right in the middle, elbows his way in between Elizabeth Taylor and Prince. He's got his back to Elizabeth Taylor. She's in the white fur coat, and as John said, her shoes were worth more than his whole life. Elizabeth is there. John's got his back to, his Liz to Elizabeth Taylor, and he's right in Prince's face. And he's going, yo, Prince, man, yo. And he's just bumping up against Prince. The show was fucking awesome. Woo! <laughs> and he goes, I, I, I dropped two tabs of acid, which was true. I was, drank a six-pack of beer. He says, I was drinking beer through my eyes. All the flowers, all the stuff. Oh, I was great. All the guitars. Like, oh, woo! And given it his Boston best, which allowed Gilbert Davison, who's there with Prince, to you know look at Elizabeth. Like, what are you going to do? Nutcase ruining the party. Oh, we got to go grab Prince and get him out of there. And everyone in the room, no doubt, is thinking, "Who's this asshole who ruined our evening?" I didn't know this story. I saw John later. We went out. We had a nice time. The person who told me that story was Prince. And Prince said, that guy saved my life. He said, I love that guy. <laughs> it was exactly what Prince wanted. Get me out of here. And, and John was smart enough to rescue him. That's a great story. <laughs> Prince and feminism. Mm. Um, your take on Prince and feminism. Oh, and this person said they sold their Slayer tickets so they could be here tonight and couldn't be happier. <laughs> oh, 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 all right. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, well, if you define a feminist as someone who believes in equality for women, Prince was a feminist. Uh, he, liked, he liked outliers. He liked people who normally would be overlooked. Um, and if he saw that we would be overlooked, yet we were equivalent, um, he would throw us an opportunity 
If, if, if all things being equal, if you're the outlier that no one's going to give a chance to, I'll take you. The other thing about him that was lost on a lot of his competition is how Prince was not a sexual predator. He never, he never talked about conquering women. In his lyrics, he wrote about actually empowering women. And I think the perfect example is Do Me Baby, where he's saying, you, object of my affection, take all the power of seduction and you do me and i'll really like it that 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 was that that was prince that was prince in his lyrics and he there was such an egalitarianism there like we are equals i think this is fun you think this is fun we're having fun together it was a common theme and i think his competition came out with songs that said baby i'm going to do this to you and i'll do this to you and i'll do this to you <laughs> prince was like Baby, I want you to do this to me. <laughs> that makes him uh, different from, from his competition. I would love to hear the story of the song Wally, how you felt making it and then destroying it. Okay, here's the story. So um, Prince had been with Susanna Melvoin, Wendy Melvoin's twin sister, for a long time. Before they were together as a couple, they were friends. They had a long history together. And he loved her very, very, very much. But the relationship was not going to work. It just wasn't going to work. And this was a deeply sad realization because he truly loved her very much. She loved him. And they finally ended it, and she moved back to California. And I kept waiting for the heartbreak song. I knew he was hurting. You could, you could just you could feel it in his body language. And he was glum, and he was sour, and he's hurting. When's the song going to come out? And instead, we were doing things like Housequake and these dance songs. And, and then... One day, we were at the house, it was in December, at his house, and um, he had called me to the house in the morning, and he had a note for me, and he had me mic the piano and all the instruments that he wanted set up, and we started recording this song, one instrument at a time, and it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever heard him do. And he starts by talking to Wally. Wally was his friend, and Wally worked for him at that time, Wally Safford, Detroit's own. And... Uh, and he says, uh, Wally, where'd you get those glasses? Can I try them on? Because uh, I like those glasses you're wearing. And I'm going to a party tonight, and I want to look really clean. Cause... And then he confesses to Wally, because my woman left me. But that's OK. I'm going to meet someone else. It's going to be great. And then the song goes into these chords, this chord progression. And the melody is just, oh. Oh, oh, my la-dee-da, oh, my la-dee-da. And he said to me afterwards, isn't it funny how melody and malady, sickness, how those words sound the same. And he was saying, oh, my la-dee-da, oh, my malady, oh, my melody. And it reminded me of Stevie Wonder's It Ain't No Use, where the, the chorus is just the word oh from the lead singer. It was one of the most painful, honest things and most beautiful things I'd ever heard him do. Took us all day, you know, to do this. We built up the whole track printed it to cassette. He took the cassette and he said, now put all 24 tracks in record and erase it. I said, what? Put all 24 tracks in record and erase it. And I, I just, I shook my head. I said, no, no, Prince, we've been up all night, sleep. Just sleep on it, we'll do it, we'll erase it tomorrow. <laughs> no, no, you can't do this. And he said, if you don't, I will. And I remember him going to the remote of the tape machine and putting the tracks in record and I said, no, no, stop, stop, don't do it, don't do it. And he did it. He erased the whole tape, top to bottom. It, the song was re-recorded a few days later, 
But the version that I have heard, that Wally has heard, that is floating around, the re-recorded version, has, uh, it's the same chord progression, the same melody, but a much jauntier attitude. It's a much more, well, cocksure. It's much, um, it's, it's, it's bolder. The vulnerability isn't there, and it wasn't that big, swooping, swooning piano ballad that we had recorded that day. So that version was, in fact, released, and nobody else heard it but you. The, the one we did that day that he destroyed, yeah. The, it was just the two of us. Eric was not there. We didn't do horns on it. It was just the two of us. He played everything on it. And I have come to believe that um, this is why I think the contents of the vault should be released. He wanted to get it out of him, that pain, but he didn't want anyone to hear it. He didn't like people to know that he was in pain. He never wanted people to know that he was sick. He didn't cancel shows because of exhaustion or needing to go to a spa or something like that. I mean, he, he really denied that he was in pain. And he didn't want people to know. In the era of high radio airplay and MTV, so many of the songs you recorded with Prince seem to have been created at the exact right time. Um, with Raspberry Beret, You Got the Look, Kiss, also accessible. What was it like in the studio during the Black Album, specifically Bob George? Well, the album, the Black Album was not intended to be an album, which is why I'm sure he pulled it off the dock. Um, we had been working on Sign of the Times for a long time. Prior to Sign of the Times, we were working on Dream Factory and something called Crystal Ball. That was one album that went through a lot of iterations before it reached its final form. So we'd been working really, really hard. And Prince was also... Um, well, he, was, he, was, he was tired of doing serious songs like Sign of the Times and The Cross. So Sheila E. had a birthday coming up, and uh, we just stopped for a little while to do some fun stuff to play at Sheila's birthday party. Bob George was an, um, a chimera. It was inspired by two people. One was Bob Cavallo, Prince's manager, and the other was Nelson George, the music critic and scholar. And uh, Nelson George had kind of criticized Prince in the press recently, saying, well, not as good as he used to be. <laughs> and Bob Cavalla was giving Prince some grief over something or other. So Prince decided to write a song about this character who was a disgruntled loner who was going to go shoot up the, I don't know, shoot up the parking lot or something like that because he's so upset. And while Prince was out of the room, I was playing around with the Publison Infernal Machine, and I pitch-changed his voice down a whole octave to that low voice. And he came back in and heard it, and he loved it. So uh, we, we kept it. But, but the Black Album was cutting together these songs that we did just for fun, never intended to be an album, after Sign of the Times was criticized for not being as R&B or as soulful as he had once been. He kind of thought, all right, I'll show him who's funky. Listen to this. But then he changed his mind. Did he care what the critics said? About yeah, he, he cared what the critics said, but he, he cared what his fans thought. He cared, um, yes, he cared very much. Uh, he worked very hard for um, recognition, and I know that, that those things bothered him. That concludes part two of my conversation with Susan Rogers. Many thanks to her for coming to Detroit to share her stories about working with Prince. The Essential Conversation series is a production of Detroit's public radio station, WDET, and supported by ELS Studio 3D. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll listen to other episodes in this series. Production provided by Rowan Nemisto and original music by Brett Lucas. I'm Andalisi. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.